0: Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, episode 40, the Big Four Zero, I'm speaking with Paul Krauss, Paul is the vice president, chief legal officer and company secretary of Harley Davidson. So here's one problem that Paul never runs into thinking this through. Paul never walks into a room and after he says, hi, I work at Harley Davidson, he never hears the words, fine, so what do they do? That's what I'm guessing. I didn't ask him that question, but I've just reflected on it. As I was doing this intro and I was thinking to myself, no, I don't think he's ever heard the words, what do they do? So it's a fantastic discussion. I really enjoyed it. Paul talks us through his journey, as my guests usually do. He starts off with his time. He had spent six years at Littler Mendelssohn as an attorney there. He worked out pretty quickly that the law firm life was not a life that he was going to be in for too long, but he did stick it out for six years, says it's a fantastic grounding. Spent a bit of time, four years in-house at Metal and then joined Harley-Davidson about four or five years ago, rising pretty quickly to the ranks of the most senior legal officer there. So it's a great discussion, Uh, lots of topics we covered. How would I describe Paul? I think I'd describe Paul as a kind of a no-nonsense kind of guy. I wonder whether you're going to agree with me. So you're going to get the chance to have a listen, so do that now, and in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Paul Krauss, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm looking forward to it. Great to be here, Jim. Fantastic. Now, Paul, if you've, if you've listened before, you might know I usually start with a Tell us a little bit about the Paul Krauss story. Back at the early days, though, I, I want to know how you got interested in law, what sparked that interest, and then we'll take the journey from there. But take me right back.
1: All right. So you're, it's prepare to be underwhelmed and uninspired. I think it's, uh, it's, uh, one of those classic stories of you take a a, a gap year, you're really not sure what you want to do after college. And a buddy of yours is
0: taking the LSAT. And so,
1: buddy of mine was taking the LSAT.
0: Yeah. That's right. And you thought it's a good idea. Well, why not? What else am I doing?
1: Absolutely. Actually, I just like, I took it, you know, I was like, oh, I'll go pick up a book and, uh, did some LSAT, uh, questions, specifically the logic games. I was like, yeah, hey, it's kind of fun. So, so, actually, the last day I could sign up for the December LSAT, which would get me into the next year in law school if I did okay. And I did okay and uh, pretty aggressively okay. Not necessarily that great, but good enough. And then, uh, yeah, kind of went from there.
0: Fantastic. Okay. And so, the early career, you started as an attorney at Littler Mendelssohn. Uh, take me through, the, I think that was about six years there. Take me through that. What did you learn there? How, how did that prepare you, I suppose, for the next phase of your career?
1: If I'm ever talking to like young attorneys or uh, students in law school, which I, you know, it's uh, I have a pleasure of doing now in this position, which is nice. But I always say, you know, if you're looking to get into into business law, especially, you know, it can't go wrong working at a law firm. It's it's I describe it all respect to Littler and I had a great experience there, but it was, you know. Some of the worst six years of my life, it's just you, you kind of pay your dues, right? And, you know, you learn how you learn the profession. I couldn't wait for it to be over, though. It just wasn't, you know, it wasn't my thing. I'm really glad I did it, but it just wasn't something that I was, uh, you know, looking forward to being there 30 years after I was hired.
0: So, so it's funny, isn't it? I mean, those early years at a law firm, I think there's never any regrets about it. Even though it might be very clear early on it's not going to be a long term fit, the training is kind of irreplaceable and throwing you in the deep end and so forth. And if your personality type is that it is going to be a long term career, then it's kind of perfect. so that there are usually not too many regrets as a good grounding wherever you're going to go after you know a first few years at a law firm. You agree with that generally? Absolutely. I, you
1: know, I think my personality type was not one that it fit with. And actually, I kind of knew that going in. I can say that now, but I always knew that even at day one, I was like, if I make partner, I know I messed up somewhere along the way. kind of kept that to myself, kept it on the deal to all the partners out there
0: with all due respect to them
1: absolutely no there is no i mean you know they they honestly they earn their the careers that they have um i just i just knew that it wasn't something that i you know i it really aspired to um it was not a, you know it said it was you know just a, didn't want necessarily that career path kind of from day one
0: i knew that Tell me, is that because, what, what kind of elements, I mean, is it because the you, you really wanted to get into the business side and help a business as opposed to, you know, kind of a service provider to a number of businesses? What What were the attributes that made it clear to you early on that it was going to be a different path for you?
1: You know, I, th- I think I, you know, the, the sacrifices you have to make uh, when you're working at a law firm, the client service aspects of it, et cetera, are, you know, they're, they're significant, right? And I know that, you know, I appreciate all of our outside counsel and, uh, you know, all the training that I got from, uh, the partners at Littler, et cetera. It was just, you know, something that I was like, you know, I think I'd see a different life for myself.
0: And okay. So one more question in relation to that period. Anything that you would do differently now? with a benefit of hindsight for your time in a law firm and for those you know, younger listeners out there that might, be, might have that time ahead of them, anything you do differently during that time if you had it again.
1: Yeah, no, that's a it's a really great question, and I guess it it it, uh, it it makes the assumption that I was in control to be able to do anything differently, right? You just yeah, you're basically in learning mode the entire time. You are taking on assignments and you know basically trying to do your best at the assignments. You know, I, I'm sure if I thought about it hard enough, I could come up with examples of specific things that I wish I would have you know done a little bit differently, worked a little harder on, or whatever you know. But in general, I'm not you know I can't think of any grandiose things that I would change. It exists for a reason. And it's, uh, it's an efficient model to provide legal services.
0: I do remember, actually, uh, it's funny, I used to say to the trainees coming through my team you know, in, in those days, and on reflection, maybe it wasn't great advice, actually, but I used to say, make every year count for two packing as much in these early years, pack as much as you possibly can in and make every year count for two, which basically really meant work as hard as you can given your circumstances. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how well that advice would go down now. So tell me, anyway. So, okay, after you, you've, you've got a great grounding, six years, then you you moved over to in-house team, I think in 2010 to Arcelor Metal. Tell me about that transition of what you were well prepared for, maybe not so well prepared for, And then I might ask for some kind of key standout moments for you during your time in that part of your career.
1: Yeah. Like I said at the uh, sort of outset is, you know, the experience at a law firm really does prepare you to be in-house in in so much as... I've gotten questions from law students like, you know, would you hire a law student out a, you know, out of law school into to be, you know, on your in house team? And it's like, you know, all respect, absolutely not, like a hundred percent not, right? And so there are certain things that you're going to learn at a law firm that are kind of irreplaceable, you know, and it's that's not the only place to learn them. Um, we just don't have at Harley a big enough legal team where we can can do that. So, you know, I think, yeah, I, I think uh, my experience provided the grounding that I think I, you know, I needed uh, to be able to make the transition. It is a different, it's like an entirely different skill set. but I would say, you know, in all honesty, I'm, I'm, I wasn't like a knock it out of the park outside counsel, right. Either, you know, it's just like the personality of, you know, being, being a litigator. And I think about, you know, getting screamed at by somebody on the other end of the line. And you're like, why are we, why are you yelling at me? This is ridiculous. Like, you know, I know this is my job, but like, you know, I don't want to yell at you, you know, like we're just doing jobs here, right? This is, that's ridiculous. So I get to, I get to farm that stuff out as a, as an in-house counsel, which I appreciate. And it just like, it worked better with my personality and then kind of the, the problem solving that you're able to do and the amount of, you know, the number of issues you're able to see on the outside and then being, being able to sort of use those and then frame them in the way that you think are best received by, you know, your, your clients, which is the business um, uh, in-house is great. Yeah.
0: Tell me a little bit more about the business and the internal relationships, because certainly one of the themes that we hear a lot on this podcast is how important it is in those early days, well, at any days, but when you're in-house, it's about building relationships with the business leaders and making sure that you are seen as an integral part of that business and being able to achieve the business objectives. Tell me a little bit about your early learnings around that and whether that resonates.
1: Yeah, I know. It absolutely resonates. And it's something that you're sort of constantly learning and constantly sort of uh, honing your skills at making the law accessible, um, I think, is is one of the things that I, I, I think can make it a tool to make a decision and less intimidating. Right. It's you know, there are there's a heck of a lot of laws out there and there are a heck of a lot of complicated concepts. And really, my job right at, at this point in my career is just to take those Concepts, legal concepts, and and understand my audience, and then drill that into a vehicle for making a decision. Full stop. Right, and it's like it is a piece of the puzzle that is it goes into making an overall businesses business decision, and so the relationship your question is is establishing that rapport, establishing the understanding that I I understand where you're coming from. I understand that, that, you know, I don't I'm not dictating decisions to anybody. I'm using the law as a tool to be able to understand, you know, how we get to the best decision, minimizing risk and maximizing outcome.
0: I heard something just on the podcast I had, in fact, I think it was my last interview, and it was with Brandon Smith. And he talked about being a business person first and a kind of a lawyer second. Rather than necessarily being seen as the lawyer first and the business person second, so I, again, don't know if that resonates with you, but it, it kind of landed with me so that you're, the, the, the leadership within the business that you are or businesses that you are supporting see you that way. They don't necessarily see you know, and with all due respect, all lawyers, but they actually see you as a business person first, rather than necessarily as a lawyer first. Does that does that resonate?
1: Yeah, 100%.
0: Really, I
1: mean, you know, I I joke with our team too, and especially kind of in this position, nothing lands on your desk because it's going well, right? It's always, there's always a problem, which is fine. And that's why we're here to help, right? And so... The on You know, really, it, the, it starts with where do we want to end up? And then when you understand where you want to go, which is kind of the business solution, and then you're like, okay, well, there's a legal, there are a couple of legal obstacles in the way, but we can get here if we go, you know, necessarily a different route or, you know, here, let's understand these. And maybe these are things we can clear if we're willing to accept a certain amount of risk, obviously, within the right re- legal and regulatory frameworks that are set forth in whatever jurisdiction you're in.
0: So let, let's move on. 2016, you joined one of the most iconic brands in the world, Harley Davidson. You joined as a senior legal counsel. Uh, was a boyhood dream of yours? or was, Tell me a little bit about why you chose Harley Davidson, and then we're going to go into that, what appears to be, to me, a meteoric rise in your time there to your current position as VP and Chief Legal Officer.
1: Yeah, I'd say I am a Scotty boy from Wisconsin. We, in Wisconsin, turning to Scotty, so I, I did grow up in, in Wausau, Wisconsin. So yeah, uh, Harley Davidson, one of one of the most iconic brands, obviously, and it's a Wisconsin company. So I was in Chicago for you know the better part of thirteen years. You know, law firms in the Arslan Middle, and so was uh, was having our youngest or our oldest now kid, uh, my our first child, and. We're like, I don't know if we're going to raise that kid in downtown downtown Chicago. So, you know, I was kind of looking around and and I did work for a steel company, which at its core is, you know, it it is, while there is some differentiation, is a commoditized product, right? And I was like, okay, let me try something that maybe is less commoditized and I could think... You know, there's maybe nothing less commoditized than a Harley Davidson motorcycle. Yeah. So, you know, it uh, caught my interest, uh, you know, went through the interview process and, you know, ended up back in Milwaukee. I was in law school in Milwaukee. So um, it was an easy transition sort of back to uh, some familiar ground.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny how life sometimes takes you in those circles, doesn't it? So anyway, so as I said, kind of when I look at the look at your success there, it looks like a meteoric rise. Let's just call it a meteoric rise for now. But I noticed, like a, some other some other guests I've had, you chose March 2020, either you chose or March 2020 chose you to take on the senior most legal position there, of course on the cusp of the pandemic. Tell me what that what two things. Firstly, why you, sometimes I ask, what is it that you think, Paul, kind of made you stand out in terms of, you know, let's say from the pack to be able to to take on the position? So that's the first thing I'm going to ask you. And then I'm going to say, okay, what was that first, you know, 100 days like? And and although you were in the, you were at Harley Davidson, of course, so you knew the business, this was a new role for you. So I'd like to kind of get a feel for how you wrap your arms around what you were going to do differently in the first hundred days and beyond. So anyway, what about the why you first? Can you give us some insights there? Yeah, I'd like to say that
1: I have some sort of outsized talent or something like that. I I don't don't believe that to be the case. I think it's a You know, there's a lot of sort of right place, right time, a lot of right place, right time, I think, with any of these sort of situations. And we had, you know, in the legal department at that point in time, there had been a little bit of, you know, a little bit of turnover in leadership. And then, you know, the our sort of C-suite ended up turning over. And so I was, you know, one of the new hires of our now CEO. So that was, you know, long and short. There's uh, that's kind of how I ended up in the seat. You know, I was the interim CLO during that period of time. So on the list of candidates, and in addition to some external candidates that were there for hire and, you know, just, uh, I guess, uh, one thing led to another and he asked me to stick around and remove the interim title.
0: Okay. And then the first, the first hundred days, what, what, what do you, how do you go about working out what you're going to do and what your priorities are going to be the first part of your time there? Let's say the first 12 months.
1: Yeah, I'd say I'd say the C-suite turnover and our new new CEO made it pretty easy to to it wasn't like I was coming into a well established, you know, senior leadership team. Um it was it, there were expectations that there'd be change, right? And so he had his sort of directives and, and I followed along with those. You know, COVID, let's set aside COVID for a second because that was uh, that was its own set of challenges. But it's really, we had a, uh, a process that we called the rewire, which is essentially, you know, looking at how we're operating and, you know, comes with its own kind of uh, inherent restructuring. And really what you look at, at it as is how we want to support the what the business is going to look like and then how we're going to des- design ourselves to support the business. So there was that exercise one. Second thing is we had historically used a flat fee for process or a billing process for our our law firms. And that really worked well for a long period of time. And I think it just you know, it was time for a, a change and it was basically RFPing our entire suite of spend. And this, this was as much an exercise, not in, not that we weren't getting great service and many of those law firms are still around, but it was more of an exercise of I need to make sure that we understand because there's a new set of AGCs under me as well. We need to all understand where the money's going and why it's going there. And we need to look under every single rock. And so that was a lot of the exercise there. And then I'd say, you know, there's a real big people focus. Focus too, right. I'm new to the role. Some people that were at one point, my peers, you know, you're now in a management position, but realizing that, you know, it, it's a team, you know, we have our legal leadership team and, and empowering them, knowing that I, they have my support and that I trust them and kind of establishing that rapport in a variety of different ways.
0: So you've called out three, kind of first designing yourself to support the business and, and, and the new design of the business. Secondly, just the outside counsel management piece, if you like, and making sure that you had transparency and clarity over who and why and how much. And thirdly, no surprise here, the people focus, making sure that no doubt you're doing everything to support and grow the talent internally within the legal team. Can we do a bit of a deeper dive on that third one? Because the people bit is so is so important to high-performing teams, whatever industry you're in. Any particular kind of initiatives around there, Paul, that that, that you focus on to to develop on the people side?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm lucky, lucky enough to have
0: a, a, a diverse team. You know, I'd say,
1: you know, it did, it part built from the ground up and part inherited. But, you know, I think that, you know, what we've had in the U.S. <laughs> over the last uh, couple of years, has kind of really pushed some issues to the forefront on that on that end. And so, you know, from from the people side of things, uh, you know, we when, you know, I don't know what the date was, April of two thousand. Nineteen, is that right? You know, obviously we're kind of wrestling with the same issues as as many other teams and other companies are wrestling with, and sort of made the decision that what we wanted to do is uh, do some, you know, DEI initiatives, and you know, was very focused on. Okay, if we start this, we're not going to stop. That's the big thing. Is like we're not going to burn hot for six months and then and then flame out. And so it is. We started. We wanted to start it in a sustainable way and just kind of keep plugging along. And so we're still we started and we're still plugging along. That was the. Uh, ABA challenge. Uh, we were, we did that and got everybody on board with uh, doing that, which is sort of 21 days of pretty intense um, reviewing of uh, articles and then discussions around uh, diversity issues. And then it continued that. Uh, Andrea Brown and Ed Moreland on my team were kind of took that took the lead um, on a bunch of those things. And we've just you know we've continued on. And we you know start every meeting, legal team and uh, legal department team and legal leadership team meeting with DEI right. And it, it really that means. Just, just uh, we want to make sure everybody uh, feels like they're a part of the team that is you know, main, primarily focused on diversity issues but you know, has a very inclusive element to it, really. I just want, want to make sure that everybody can show up.
0: Yeah, so, certainly. I mean, deliberate, sustained, consistent. And there's some of the features that you, I, I think you pointed out there. Even more, more broadly around just training talent, what, what are the things, I suppose, that, that you focus on to make sure you're developing the kind of culture that you want in a team, the, the, again, the high performance, the culture, the kind of environment that people want to be a part of and want to bring their best selves to. Something that we all strive for in, in, bringing teams, uh, in putting teams together and, and growing the talent in our teams. Any particular initiatives out there or any particular characteristics that you're looking for to bring team members together so as to grow the kind of, you know, the high performance high culture, high performance environment that we're, that we're all striving for. Yeah, I actually joke
1: in interviews sometimes about like, you know, people will ask about opportunities and and basically uh, we're a team that, you know, if you prove yourself interested and capable, you know, I, we're going to throw opportunities at you, at you, right? It is, it is just, you know, it's super easy to find talented people or give, give opportunities to talented, like driven people. Um, that maybe is the easiest thing. And that is, I mean, development at that point takes care of itself, right? And so... Thank <laughs> you. It's a you know in in house jobs you come at it from a sort of a you you grew up in a certain area and then you know when you get in house uh, there are there are so many regulations there are so many laws and when you're talking on a on like a legal landscape there's so much that you can continue to learn um, so it's you know th- that part of my job is real easy you know and it's kind of fun to just be like yeah you've never done this before well here you go like gid- giddy up and you know it's kind of scary but you know they do it so yeah it's great and
0: it's funny so so it kind of reminds me. of. Because- couple of characteristics that I hear more and more about and I certainly see becoming more and more important i 'm not sure that I place the emphasis on them that earlier in my career that I do now, but it is the genuine curiosity people actually are curious people actually want to learn if you 've got the curiosity you want to learn and of course and you 're driven then the that you now I call it now hiring for potential. They don't need to have done that same thing in the same industry, same environment. So you say, okay, you've done that before, you'll be good. I think there is really something in the characteristics of kind of persistence, determination, curiosity, um, and a genuine willingness to, and a desire to learn. If you package that up, that hiring for potential, even though they might not have done the same thing before, to me, that's a super potent cocktail mix that um, can unleash you know, fantastic uh, results within a team and fantastic talent talent development. Does that, does that resonate?
1: It could, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's that's exactly what we have. I mean, there there are, you know, uh, plenty of folks on my team who it's like they, you know, grew up in an area of law and may have like a subject matter expertise in an area of law. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I get that. You're doing something totally different. Or we're going to add this on top of it, you know, in a way that, that hopefully is sustainable. I and mean, there's a big element to that um, as well. But it's just, you know, it's kind of fun to see somebody who hasn't done, uh, you know, a certain area of law. And all of a sudden they're like, you know, after 18 months and, you know, Kind of marinating, and they're they're advising on it, and and we you know no longer need to leverage outside counsel to the extent we otherwise needed to, or they know what they know and they know what they don't know, and we're in a we're in a pretty good spot. So
0: fantastic. Let's shift a little bit to the outside counsel piece too, and the process you undertook there. Anything about that part of the priority that you learned and what are the most significant shifts, I suppose, from, let's say, when you took on the job to what's happening now in the way in which you engage or deal with your outside counsel, the priorities that you set for them? Any particular standouts?
1: Yeah. uh, And and just so I make sure I understand uh, the question, is it it in my current role, am I dealing with them differently?
0: Yeah. I think, is there anything that different, really, from when you started in your current role and and what you're aiming to achieve or what you have achieved? in the current role, in the way in which the team actually just deals with, you know, your relationship firm's.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I think I put a premium on efficiency. I think right, and and it, like I'll joke uh, even with my team, they'll send me a super short email, very concise, and you know not too wordy at all. And I'll just throw back a TLDR, which is too long, didn't read, you know, just because they they, they know like they they I, they are all on the on board with that because it's you know what we aim for is getting to answers and you know f- tools that we can use to make decisions as quickly as possible, and so. Over time, that's you know, that's what we're looking for at outside council as well, is you know, kind of minimizing the memos, minimizing the legal ease. Let's just, you know, we need to make decisions, we need to move quickly, give us the tools we need to do. You guys are the experts, help
0: us. I often ask, you know, what do you ask you outside what do you wish they'd stop doing outside firms and start doing? It sounds like the stop doing is the long memos and the start doing is really, you know, focused answers to help solve the business problems.
1: For sure. Yeah. I, I, if they, if, uh, I mean, you know what, at one point in my career, I guess I might've been interested in like a case or reading the cases or a case name. And I'm like, that like, if you cite me a case name, I'm like, it's, it, I don't even care. Like I, I want, I, I trust you've read all of the cases and I trust you've done all of that work. Let's just talk about the answers. So,
0: okay. So let's talk a bit more broadly now in the legal industry. You've had any kind of myths, that you, well anything that you used to believe that you no longer believe given your experience i can't call sometimes i ask the this is the myth buster question and so uh, in two respects that you believe no longer believe and perhaps that you think the kind of industry is it's industry norm out there but 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 you don't place any weight on you think it's a bit of a myth that anything you can um uh, that stands out there for you
1: yeah, it's a very interesting question. The I, I the one thing that jumps to mind is you know you think about or you know people maybe sitting outside of the legal professional be like oh you know so and so likes to argue they might you know they, they they should become a lawyer and I I think that you know my view of especially my job is like it's not adversarial at all like it, there's nothing adversarial about it it's really actually the exact opposite my job I look as sort of you want to understand what the other person's thinking, right? And so just put the put yourself in the other person's shoes and then figure out how they might be thinking about a problem. And it'll give you a heck of a lot more insight on how you should solve the problem. The second thing is like seeing around corners, right? You know, you, you go put yourself in the future, put yourself in the other person's shoes in that future, and then you can figure out a lot about whether or not it's negotiate, negotiating a litigation or a contract. It's just, it's not adversarial at all. It's just kind of critical thinking and especially viewing it from somebody else's perspective.
0: It's funny. It's one of my favourite sayings. Actually, getting yourself—it's a life saying for me. Put yourself in someone else's shoes. Walk around a little bit. Okay, really try and understand someone else's perspective, thinking, and not only that, just think even the environment they're in, or they were brought up in, or 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 the kind of the cultural, whatever it might be. Getting yourself to walk around in someone else's shoes and doing that as a life kind of a challenge for yourself when you, you know whether it's in business social whatever i just think that's just a key bit of advice again one of those bits of advice i wish i took a bit early on because it really well it it, it lets you solve whatever the problem is um ahead of you because usually there are always going to be two sides and there's going to be there's have to be some kind of a whether it's a compromise a meeting of my understanding whatever it is but the the walking around in someone else's shoes as i said is one of my favorite One of my favourite sayings, something we should all be doing more of. Tell me about changes that you foresee in the legal industry, um, uh, let's say two, three, five years ahead of time. What do you see as the biggest challenges looking forward, both legal industry and perhaps managing legal departments too? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I,
1: a couple of things kind of come to mind. There is complexity, right, and and just managing the complexity of the, 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 the number of laws, the changes in the laws, the speed at which things are changing, and then the speed at which companies are changing, and the speed at which the world is changing, right? And sort of navigating all of those things in a in a way that makes us, you know, as an in-house legal department. We are, we do not bring money to the company with the exception of our trademarks team every once in a while. We basically are never bringing money into the company. And so, what we need to do is demonstrate value. And that's not, I mean, demonstrate not in a, I'm going to falsely show you that we add value where we don't. It's more of a, we really need to add value. And I think, you know, we do, but it's a, continually, you know, kind of scrutinizing ourselves to make sure we're spending legal dollars and spending legal time in the right way to get to like, you know, efficient results for the business and, you know, realizing we're we're at its core, we're a accostering, you know, so we've got to make sure we're doing it in the way that says uh, our ROI in legal spend is there and then so.
0: Anything in the technology side, do you, is there any particular technology in the legal space that you that you're coming across or that you're seeing is changing the way or can potentially change the way that you guys are working or that you know, it might impact more broadly on in legal
1: yeah i mean there are obviously there's you know ai or yeah ai is uh, is big and it or i mean i guess growing and it, you know we are you know doing some of that, but you know in the especially kind of contract space, there may be some opportunities there. It's you know the it is the maturing of that technology and make sure making sure you're doing it in the in the right way you know making you know there's a, there are volume trade-offs with those things as well and making sure that you're taking you're evaluating it and taking advantage of the opportunities that make sense for the size of your business at the time in which the you know the technology has a sort of cost benefit
0: turnout. Going to round out with some questions I I usually round out with. Anything that uh, people should stop doing in the legal industry and then the opposite, what should people be doing more of in legal? Whether it's in-house, outside, whatever it is, what are the stop doing and what are the start, start doing more of?
1: I guess there—it's probably two sides of the same coin. I would think is—is is, you know I think I'm big on accessibility of of legal, um, and and that means you know I don't like our our team. I want I want us, and I believe we are a team that we take our job seriously, but we don't really take ourselves too seriously. So it doesn't have to be just because you're talking about something that's you know super not fun. It doesn't not you know it can still be fun, and it can still be delivered in a way that isn't either doomsday or, you know, so-and-so case says this, and there's this law that says this, it's, you know, we will, we'll use a lot of analogies, I think, to, you know, whatever relationships seem to come up a lot in, you know, let's make, let's talk about this in terms that we all understand. And then, you know, we can relate that back to a legal concept of why we should or shouldn't do something or why this might be a, a pretty bad idea.
0: No, I like that actually. Accessibility and that and that's whether you're accessible or the kind of the language that you're using and the approach that you're taking to communicate is accessible. That's actually a real skill. <laughs> be able to not sound, if I can put it this way, particularly to the to the business team, be able to not sound like a lawyer. Be able to understand here's where I understand the problem is, and being able to strip it from the kind of legalese that sometimes, particularly early in your career, you you're kind of You hide behind and you protect yourself with because it's easy to do. So, So, Paul, I like the way you put that, the accessibility. Now, hardest thing, Paul, that you've ever done, personal, professional, that you're happy to share with us on this podcast.
1: Think of two two answers. Let's go with a personal first. Is there's a there's a cross country ski race in northern Wisconsin. I don't know if you have ever cross country skied, but it is not easy to do, right? And yeah, a buddy of mine and I would uh, drive up from Chicago to until we kind of hit snow in the winters. Uh, this is going back a handful of years, but uh, uh, yeah, Dan Meyer and I would get in a car, drive up to until uh, we hit snow, and you know maybe five times before we uh, skied this race called the Berkabiner in Northern Wisconsin. You can look it up, but it's, it it is soul crushing, I think is the best way to describe it. It, it, yeah. I've never been more humbled in my life than uh, skiing that really, really, you know, every endurance athlete should give that a shot at some point in time. So it was pretty fun. Professionally, you know, I guess there's a fair bit of personal uh, in there. It's like the last two years is tough, you know, COVID and not, you know, a joke. And now I'm at least leaving the basement, but, but for you know, 18 months or so, I was in my basement with a, a three and a five year old or a two and a four year old at that point in time upstairs and not going to school, not doing anything like that. And so, you know, it was a tough one to get over. Hopefully, we're on the backside of that.
0: Yeah, now I uh, hear you loud and clear. I, I, I think, um, f- firstly, on the, on the personal and the, um, in the endurance example, the sporting endurance, there is nothing like, and I can't say I've done it too many times, but actually pushing yourself to the physical, what you feel like is the physical edge and you, the way you described it, humbling. Absolutely. And I think, I think it's a real way to get fantastic perspective and not a lot of us actually do it, but, that humbling experience when you are at the physical edge of what you can do—it's uh, kind of enlightening, too. So, so I absolutely love that. Yeah, in the last couple of years, particularly the COVID, the family, the stress, all—all all of that. I'm hoping to. In fact, I've just booked my first trip, and for those of you, so, yeah, just booked my first trip back to the US. I'm hoping to do a quick trip before Christmas. Uh, Europe and the US so uh, now this this episode is probably about six weeks from the time that people are going to actually listen so for everyone it's about November the 10th right now and I'm super excited to get back out in the world our, our borders just literally came down the last week or two so as you can see I'm I'm chomping at the bit a couple more questions advice Paul that you'd give to your 25 year old self you know, I, geez, that's a, it's a tough one. Uh, and, and that,
1: that's because, you know, like it, it discounts the journey, you know, and I, I, it, it is, like, yeah, I, I don't want to, you know, it, 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 I think hopefully when COVID's over and, you know, in a pretty good spot, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it is just to kind of keep trying, uh, would probably be it. Right. Is like, you know, you're 25, you just, you know, no matter what stage of your life you're in. Right. And now I'm, you know, learning a whole bunch of new things and, you know, It's a whole bunch of effort, but if you keep trying, that uh, probably put you in a pretty good spot.
0: I love the discounts, the journey, actually, because sometimes we we, want to take away the hard stuff or the stuff that we spend a lot of time stressing over, worrying about. But I I push back sometimes on that because I just say, yeah, I get that. But, but if you weren't that kind of personality type where well, you didn't necessarily stress over it, you might not have you know, gone through the personal growth, the journey, whatever it was to get, to get you to this point. So, but I haven't had anyone describe it as discounting the journey. So I, I really like that. Last question to wrap up, anything that's keeping you up at night now?
1: A three and a five-year-old.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what a way to finish off, Paul. It's been fantastic speaking to you. Thanks so much. I've had an absolute blast.
1: Awesome, same. Thanks, Jim.
0: Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.